Pittsburgh pulls up for three. Boom! Knocks it down. Curry from the corner at three. Puts it in. For overtime, makes it go. A warm welcome from me, Mark Woods, to the latest edition of the MVP cast brought to you in association, as ever, with Total Environmental Compliance. Check out their fantastic consultancy services for a whole range of environmental issues at tcompliance.co.uk. Now, our guest this time out is one of the UK's growing band of coaching expatriates, once of the BBL, no, a, a globetrotter working his way through the pyramid currently. Over in the US, there's a scout and signing board within the Toronto Raptors organization. Tim Lewis, welcome to the MVP cast. Thanks, Mark. Um, you're in Florida. Not a bad place to be this time of year. Not a million miles away, of course, from the NBA bubble. We've had a little sample of the action. How's that all seem to you over there? I mean, you know, it's uh, it's obviously all very different. Um, I think the NBA has done a, a very good job with the way they've constructed the, the site. I mean, the world, that worldwide sport uh, facility is, is exceptional in the first place. So um, you can understand when you go there and you see it and you're around that sort of Disney environment, you can see why they've, why they've chosen to go there. I mean, obviously ESPN um, being owned by Disney helps, but uh, it's, uh, it's been impressive. I think the way they've done it and managed to, to, to get something up and running. It was interesting to see the, the, the first few games and actually what, what you had, which maybe people didn't expect, which you wouldn't get at a normal NBA game, is players from other teams sitting courtside watching their future opponents. I mean, normally at this time of year, you'd, you'd be on the road, you'd be looking at teams. Obviously, everyone's at one place at, at once. It's 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 a very different scouting environment. But how do you think that will shape game plans you know, and, and, and scouting reports when players are able essentially to walk out of their accommodation across the street and say, right, we're playing that team in two days' time. I'm going to sit through a full game. I mean, it, it's really become very, I mean, the, the whole scenario right now is like you're back in an Olympic environment or a mm. European champion environment, where, which is not unusual to, 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 obviously to myself and, and coaches that have been around that. So for the players, I'm sure for some of them, it's going to be very different, the ability to just sit and watch games and take on board. But that won't change the processes that, that go on behind the scenes. I mean, in terms of, uh, compile, compilation of, of video and and scouting report, uh, reports, both personnel and, and key sort of data in terms of playing wise. So that that still goes on. Some of it will go on remotely. Um, some of the video guys are still based up in um, wherever they're from. For example, Toronto's lead video guy is up in Toronto, and he's doing all the video work from there. So they've just got to find different processes to. To, del- to deliver that once uh, once they're uh, in camp and in in the bubble, but uh, I think for the players it, it will help them just visualize things better. But uh, behind the scenes, the work will continue to be exactly the same. Demystify for the listeners. We have this image, I guess, from popular culture of the Skype being the guy you know sitting under a, a cap, hoping no one notices him, trying to make sense of other teams' playbooks, you know, providing those sort of furtive moments of, of genius to, re- to relay back to the coaching staff. In practice, what does an advanced scout in the NBA do? I mean, you have multiple. So there are personnel and then there's advanced scouts that will go and look at, and basically will report back about everything. So you're taking um, notes about what they're doing, what they're running, how they're running it, time, time notes in terms of when it was run, play calls, stuff like that. I mean, you arrive at the arena, you go through the, the, the back entrance where everybody else will go through, um, and then you have an assigned seat, and it depends on you know, the arena you're in. Some arenas could be up in the guard, some arenas are, are courtside. So, um, you know, for example, the Raptors, they, they generally try to, for, for with me and for me, that the, the, the games that I will do have always been high-level courts. So Orlando, Miami, Oklahoma City, um, even New Orleans, like those, those have what they call great, um, great scout seats. So, um, and then, and then you're just logging, you write a report post game, um, you know, with your timestamps and everything else that you go in, any observations, and then it's emailed back and then you move on to the next one. You know, the full time, you know, I've not been doing it on a full time basis. I've been, um, sort of more um, intermittent, but the, the guys that are on, they're on the road, they can be on the road 25 days of a month. Um, 
So it's a it's a it's a hard job. It's you're constantly on flights, off flights, leaving early in the morning. Um, you know, you do a game in um, you do a game in uh, Oklahoma tomorrow, and then you got to fly to Atlanta. You know, either that night, first thing in the morning, you got a game in Atlanta, or you may have a day, and then you're back in Miami. So it's um, it's 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 by no means glamorous, but um, it opens your eyes. You learn a lot about the NBA. You meet a lot of people around the league. Um, but it's definitely not cloak and dagger. <laughs> I mean, it's it's interesting when I've I've been at games and often the media sit near the Scots or beside the Scots in a lot of arenas. Yep. And the intriguing thing when you talk is is how much of a balance is in a game between watching players. So trying to you know obviously tendencies are so easy now through various statistical packages to, to pick up. But you know picking little things up about players, but also constantly watching the coaching staff. Because it's you know, that's that's almost the fount of of information that you're you're trying to get. Mm-hmm. I mean, as someone who's obviously been a head coach and, and you know has been assistant coach and everything, how much when you're how much do you kind of prioritize or where do you put the priority of saying that coach is doing X at that particular time as opposed to that player's got a very nifty move that he pulls two or three times when he gets that kind of matchup? From from a personal perspective. It's more about personnel. For me, I'm more worried. I would want to know more about the personnel and their tendencies and what what they can, what they like to do, knowing that the players know and understand how to guard guys, um, as opposed to knowing a you know all the sets. I mean, you can go, you can go somewhere. I mean, Orlando. You go to Orlando and they're running 60, 70, 80 different things a game. I mean, it's you know you you can't absorb and and, and assimilate absorb all that information. So for me, it's always been about giving them a minimal amount of information about uh, about the plays and what they're doing, uh, an overview that they can they can guard key things. And then obviously, as a staff, we always we're on top of that. We know maybe what's going to happen, um, you know, late game key situations, and that that'll be the same. You know, that that's really going to come down to to a head coach's preference. Um, whether or not they're personnel driven, whether or not they really want to go into running a whole ton of plays and understanding what they're, they're doing. But I think you'll find the majority of them nowadays are, are probably less play driven. Um, they do know, or they do have considerable playbooks, but they will only, only give so much information to the players, but the players will always get personnel sheets pregame, even though, they may have been in the league for 10 years. They're still still getting that information and any updates on what they're doing and um, new things. Where does the job satisfaction from that come from? Because, you know, obviously with when you're on the coaching staff, when you're on the bench, you see that you make the small adjustments, you're talking to players, you're, you're directly in the action. You're two steps possibly removed. Or, you know, hard. For you, where, where, does the, where does the satisfaction from this role come from? I mean, just a lot. I mean, obviously, first off, a lot of the game being involved with the game at any level. Um, secondly, is obviously you're preparing. You 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 are part of that process of preparing a team to beat another team, um, and ultimately, you're initially the front line of that. You know what you derive from each game. You know play calls, signals. Um, you know character traits. What you know what are they doing late games, stuff like that. So you have a you know, you have a fairly large involvement in in their planning and preparation um, of of games. Um, and I, at the end of the day, you know, to be involved in high high level sport in any capacity, you know, there's an enjoyment about it. I mean, I love the game of basketball; always have done, and um, will always continue to do so. And I think, you know, regardless of what level it is, you know, any involvement in a team um, has an immense amount of satisfaction for me. Um, you know, helping them in, in whatever way you can. You mentioned at the start this journey, incredible journey. I'm just rattling through the the, the countries here and see UK, obviously, Spain, Germany, Japan, US, Canada, Thailand, Philippines, Qatar. It's a big passport. Um, I mean, it's, it's there's been an extraordinary amount of step, but if we go back to the very start, I mean, you went to college in the States uh, in New Hampshire, but then you come back and your, your first sort of steps after that college was was back at Crystal Palace the days when your figures like Roy Packham, Jim, Jim Walsh were there in your palace when they when they slightly dropped out of the BBL but they were still in division one. But mm-hmm. that was a playing career that was was alongside another profession. Yeah, I, I I mean I 
it was at a time when trying to play overseas was extremely difficult. You, you, you were, you know, anybody was classified the same. So Americans, if you were American, Swedish, English, Dutch, whatever, you were, you were an import player. And uh, so therefore, the, you know, there was a necessity for the majority of, of people to, to play within their home countries. Um, so I came back, I did a postgraduate uh, in education um, along with, um, I was with Andy Powson and Graham Hill over at uh, Borough Road, um, well, the old West London Institute. So I was there for a year while playing at Palace. Uh, Roy and uh, a couple of others, Kevin Coleman, Jim Walsh, had uh, encouraged me to come back and play where I'd started my career. Although I actually started my career at Gravesend with uh, Folkestone, if I, I should say. I started my career in Folkestone, at Folkestone Saints, where um, they, they pulled me through. And then I went to uh, Crystal Palace. And then from Crystal Palace, I actually moved to Lost Travel with Chris Morgan um, over in Gravesend. Um, and then ultimately in East London with Hump Flong. So um, I came back and, and went to school, back to university, did a postgraduate, and then started playing at Palace. And then I taught for ultimately 15 years. And that, that, um, that, that was a varied... I, I went from a grammar school to a, uh, an independent prep school to an independent senior school. But education, being in education allowed me to do, I, I guess, what I always really wanted to do, which was coach. And um, I was able to coach in school... I was involved with regional um, basketball, so I was coaching regional teams. Then that grew to being an assistant with um, England of the 16s uh, with uh, um, Rick Woolridge. Um, and then I went on to be the head coach of the under 16s and an assistant at the 18 level with Dave Titmus and Rick Woolridge again. Um, and then head coach of the 18s and then the 20s. And then ultimately was with the, with the program, British, the men's program from 2006 through to 2012. I mean, you were 30 um, when you took that under 16 rule. I mean, what, what point for you did the kind of light bulb moment go and go, yeah, rather than playing, being my thing, I'm going to be a coach. I, I always, even when I was playing at Palace, I was, I was doing some coaching and I always enjoyed it. And I always knew that that's ultimately what I wanted to do, but there was, you know, in England, there was no money in it. There was no, you could, I mean, when I say money, we're not talking about millions of dollars. We're talking about enough money to survive as a, as a, as a, co as a, as a full-time job with a family um, on an ongoing basis, which is why education supplemented it. So, I, you know, the, the catalyst for me moving out was I actually got divorced in 2006 and then had an opportunity to go overseas. And, and I, I, that's when I took it because I felt then that that was the opportunity that, I'd been waiting for and, and it was something that I, you know, I couldn't turn down. In that period, you went over to the Canarias Academy in Spain, a very, very well regarded sort of youth academy. And, you know, it's just one of the places a lot of British kids have gone there, British coaches as well, but very much part of, of Spain's formidable development system. When you go there and you kind of get, you're stepping outside the, the bubble, if we use the word bubble again in, in this current day and age. Um, but what did what did you soak up from being in that kind of environment where you know we've seen the talent that that can produce? Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, for me, it was key to get out of England. Um, I just never felt that you could develop fully as a coach um, by remaining in one one place, um, and therefore. Like I say, when that opportunity presented itself, I, I wanted to, to take that opportunity to go and experience the way that, you know, one of the top top countries in the world, you know, develops players, um, you know, how they play. Um, you know, money wasn't an issue in terms of that wasn't the driving factor. I shouldn't say it wasn't an issue. It wasn't the driving factor. For me, it was about the, opp the opportunity that presented itself, um, the opportunity to actually be, get outside of, of the UK and be involved with basketball, which as a British coach is, is not um, something that's easy to do. Uh, you know, people don't see British uh, basketball coaches as something that, that comes out of England. I mean, they, the first thing they always ask you is, you play soccer or you play rugby, <laughs> or you, you know, whatever else, the traditional, traditional thing. So, um, 
you know, it was it was an opportunity that was presented to me, presented to me, and I just it, it wasn't something I was going to turn down because I, you don't know when those opportunities will come down, come round again. And uh, in it, you know, it definitely was an eye opener in terms of the level of talent and and players that were were there, and 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 how you know how a, how a system was being developed to produce some some high class players. Because in a sense, when I always looked at your career progression coming through. There was always that part of me that felt you were a sort of a victim of this country. And I might be a curious term to use, but if you equate what how you came through this coaching pyramid to, to what would happen in any other country, you know, under 16 assistant, under 18 lead, under you know, 18 assistant, under 18 lead, under under 20, then you move on to the senior national team, you're coaching in the top flight, you know, as well thought. That's a very classic progression for a young coach in most countries. But then because of the nature of British basketball, there is that incredible glass ceiling that either you just bounce off it, and we've seen a lot of coaches in this country just hit it and they don't go any further, or you have to just completely step aside of it. I mean, did, is there a kind of, are you sort of that classic person that you step back and out with a bit of hindsight and a bit of outside perspective, you look at that system and go, that's why the, the sport in this country doesn't function effectively. Yeah, I think. I mean, I, I think when we get to the Pirates, I, we'll talk about some stuff mm. there in terms of players, in terms of that 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 what holds people back. And I, I, I honestly believe that coaches can be successful. I think. Let me go backwards. I think Great Britain basketball has moved forward immensely, and I think there are a number of people. I think, I think Warwick Can did a an unbelievable job in terms of actually giving us a vision of how British basketball and the development of British basketball for coaches and for players can actually be achieved, sustained, developed. Um, I, don't, I don't ever see myself as a victim. I think, you know, it's just, you know, it's the way that things go. I think, I think for, for whatever reason, I think people are very guarded of their own turf in, in the, in the UK. Um, I've always felt that we're not a harmonious um, market I think you know I just feel that there are there are some very talented coaches that can be afforded an opportunity to to coach at a higher level um, and may never get that opportunity simply because either somebody's been doing it in in the same place for the last 20 years regardless of win loss or or whatever else um, I think the talent, the pathway for coaches probably has, has, like I say, has improved. Warwick did a better job, but there's still not really. I don't see the opportunities, high level opportunities for young coaches to to coach and succeed in coaching in in the UK. Um, how many young coaches are are attached to BBL teams that are full time and that can afford to do it financially? Um, I believe you've, you're driven by opportunity initially. Because if you don't take opportunities, then you're never going to get the next opportunity and then, then the next opportunity. And that's the way I have approached the way that I've seen my career go, my path or followed my path. But I think there are some talented coaches in, in the UK, but I think there are some of them that are involved in education and are afraid to leave education or are in great full-time jobs, but are afraid to leave great time full, full, full-time jobs because they can't, or there's nobody that will afford them the opportunity of a full-time job that they can support a family with um, and continue to grow as basketball coaches. I think there are very few of those opportunities in England. Obviously, you've got the head coaching situations in the BBL, but those are only, what, 12 teams? Um, you know, and outside of that, where, where is the opportunity for, for growth? Obviously, you have the, 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 the national team um, opportunities. Um, but those are only short, short-lived. Uh, you know, usually just summer, summer allocations. And so for me, it was, you know, it, it, yeah, there was a glass ceiling. I would, I think that's a, that's probably a, a good analogy. Like I, and that was part of the reason for for the for establishing, you know, Essex Essex Pirates. Um, not only for players, but for coaching um, to give an opportunity to coach for people to coach or players to grow and, and have uh, an opportunity that they just weren't being afforded um, at anywhere else within, within the country. I mean, you told me at the time when that, when the pirates started in 20, 
Mm-hmm. You said to me one of the, the real benchmark for success of this of this club won't necessarily be about trophies. It will be about finding talent, nurturing talent. It was obviously one of those teams that didn't win a huge amount of games. It came and went like so many franchises in that sort mm-hmm. of decade from the BBL and in, in a relatively short space of time. But can you take some solace from the fact that it did do exactly what you set out to do in that respect? There's talent came through it. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, th- I think there are, very, uh, you know, the, I mean, the way you've put it is exactly the way we spoke about it. And there are very few people that I think valued or appreciated what that organization was about. And for somebody to say at that level, we're not, the trophies will come, like we're not interested in those initially. You know, what we're in, what we were interested in is giving, identifying British talent that wasn't being afforded an opportunity anywhere else and give those, those players an opportunity to prove that they can play in the league in England. Now, that you have to understand identifying talent and, and long-term assessment and things like that. To me, the, the Pirates, it, you know, it was disappointing that, we, that, that, that it ceased because I think over time it would have proven to have been exactly what we wanted it to be. And I think it actually did over two years with, with a couple of examples. Miles Hessen, for example, we, we did not find Miles Hessen. Miles Hessen was found in Birmingham. And I would never, I never take any credit for finding Miles. What we did with Miles is we identified Miles um, initially through a Great Britain program. He was a raw athlete that just did things exceptionally well that other players didn't do physically. And when we had this opportunity, and my frustration is good, I think, from, from playing with it, coaching the under 20 programs in England and under 18 programs in England and seeing some of the talent, albeit some of it was raw because the, 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 the work that some of them would get at clubs or um, their development was, was hindered. My frustrations were that all our, our automatic scenario was to ship them to the States. And, and then for every one kid that we've got that's done well, we, there's probably 50 kids that don't do very well in the States. And I just always felt that we, we had a, an opportunity in England. We have a talent pool of, of players that I think are better than anywhere in Europe, physically, athletically. We just did them an injustice at times of not giving them the skill set and the talents. And I think there are people that have, have done that as, um, over time. But they, there was a, should have been more opportunities for some of these younger players, like they do in Europe, to get involved and play and play meaningful minutes in, an, in a BBL environment. And that's why we did it. You know, it, it was my own money. It was um, an Audi um, investor who came on board, whose, whose money helped immensely. And it was a dream. It was a passion. It, you know, we wanted to see these kids ex- succeed. And I think we've done that. I think Miles has been a proven situation. It, it oh, In a short time, he got hurt, but it opened people's eyes to what these players were capable of doing. Jamel Anderson had, then had an opportunity and has been long, long-term in, in Loughborough. He was discovered by Paul Douglas in, in, in his area of the world. We just provided and facilitated an opportunity to, to highlight and expose these players for what they really can be. And I think when we were around, when we were around the Great Britain program, we would see this all the time, how talented these players potentially were um, compared to some of their European counterparts, um, yet they had nowhere to play. They were at a crossroads. They were finishing you know, education in England, and they had no, no idea what they wanted to do or where to go. There was no, no teams were interested in them. Um, so, you know, it was just, it was one of those things. It just, uh, How tough know. though was that decision? I mean, that, that second season, you were 132. It was a struggle, obviously, for, for wins. And then two weeks before the start of season three, you, you, a couple of sponsors went by the wayside. You had sure. to make that decision to pull out. I mean, having invested this, this was a passion project. How tough was it to make that call to go, you know, we're going to have to set the season out. But obviously, when you set a season out, the odds are that there's not going to be a next season. 
Yeah, extremely frustrating. I mean, you know, it just disappointing in, in numerous ways. Um, you know, obviously disappointing to let the players down. Uh, disappointing to let the the BBL down. Um, but it, you know, it was something that was unavoidable. I mean, the the out the backing from Audi pulled out, um, and it was all linked to a plan that we'd had and submitted to sort of move to back to Palace, basically. Um, sort of combine with East London University, try and be involved with Barking, and um, the you know I th- personally think that that development plan was ahead of its time, and we um, we had a business plan that w- was put together, and had the business plan got went through, we had some high level backers coming out of London. Audi would have stayed involved, um, and it, and it just got blocked. And I think there there were a, for me, there, there were a number, a couple of people that were on that board that that blocked it, and um, bizarrely, we've seen pre- pretty much the business plan that we put together now, um, sort of being delivered in, in London. So that was the biggest thing. We we were prepared to go. Um, we wanted to move to London. It was all there. We'd had meetings. There was money that was reliant on that happening, and then when it was blocked. Uh, because I had always had a vision, I, you know, I always had a vision of playing back, at getting Palace back up and running, and uh, being, being. I still think it's one of the best facilities in, in the country, uh, regardless of whether the pool's there or not, and uh, <laughs> you know, historical memories and and everything. So, you know, we were fairly long way down the road, and and there was there was some support from the BBL, and then it just got sort of side roaded a little bit once we. Uh, once we got to the final stages. So we were just left without any, any, any real hesitation other than we, we just can't financially do that. I couldn't personally financially continue to do that. So, I mean, The light at the end of that particular tunnel, of course, was being one of the Chris Finch's assistants and on that Great Britain team that, that was heading towards the, the London 2012 Olympics. Describe that experience of being part of that setup i mean you've been around that 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 sort of group for a few years but you know to be there in the midst of this historical moment for the sport in this country with for most of that time a ringside seat yeah i mean i felt i mean honored to to have that opportunity um you know there's plenty of other coaches that i'm sure could have could have and would love to have been involved um but to be involved in an Olympics uh, on its own is, is, you know, a remarkable accomplishment and an achievement. But to be an Olympics on your home soil was something super special. And, uh, you know, everything, every moment from that, you, you know, you valued and, and appreciated. What, what was the, I mean, what was your role? I mean, to explain to, to, to folk on that, one of the assistant, but... How do you contribute in that scenario to, to what Chris was doing? I mean, I basically took on, you know, effectively whatever, wherever they, they whatever they needed, whatever Nick and Chris needed, I, I basically filled in. And, and my role changed each year. I mean, um, I was a, I was on the bench and as an assistant. Then Paul came in. I, I ended up moving to advance, doing some advanced scouting. I came back to the bench. I was, um, I did a lot of video work. Um, you know the roles would, would be on the floor on the floor of practices delivered certain things um, so my role was forever sort of evolving in terms of what they needed you know if they needed something specifically then I would I would fit that role um, you know I, you know I was I was privileged to be around three uh, three people that have you know, you've got an NBA head coach now. You've got an associate head coach who should be a head coach in the NBA, and you had Paul McKeskey who's coaching the NBA and and being uh, being a player in the NBA. And Paul was obviously my assistant with the under twenty program. And uh, you know, for me, my you know, let's you have to be very honest with yourself. You know, you are uh, when you consider the people that you're working with and that are in front of you. You have to understand where you are. And, 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 and your level in terms of on the pecking order. And I learned an enormous amount um, about about basketball during that time. 
I mean, Nick, you know, having the opportunity, we, you know, with Nick and Chris and Paul, Tony was with us. Um, you know, it was just, it was a phenomenal six years in terms of uh, just the people that you work with and, um, you know, what you got to do, what you got to learn. And you just accepted whatever role that was, was asked of you. And uh, for me, that was the, the best way to, to service and, and help and benefit that team. I mean, let's talk about the two guys there that you know have gone from humble beginnings to to not bad gigs now. I mean, let's talk about Nick Nurse for a minute. I mean, he was doing quite well. He was, you know, he was doing okay as a coach. But you know, we're talking eight years later. Could you could you foresee Nick? You know, knowing him well, seeing him up close as an NBA champion head coach. Absolutely, I think. Um... You know, it's hard for me, you know, Nick Anchorus. I mean, both those guys are, uh, you know, I've had the pleasure to be around them a lot and they're off the charts in terms of their their knowledge and understanding of the game of basketball. They, um, you know, Nick is is a high, high-level coach, regardless of, of what levels he was coaching at before. Um, you know, an extraordinary basketball mind, Um you know, a great person just to be around and to work for, you know, expects high standards. Um, and, and you, you perform to that because, because of, of the way that he is. Um, but it doesn't surprise me at all in terms of his position now. And, you know, Chris is, Chris is the same. Um, you know, Chris is, is an unbelievable, highly intelligent, um, highly knowledgeable coach, highly regarded around the NBA and, you know, most people would say to you that they would expect him to be one of the next head coaches in an NBA environment. Um, you know, so having the opportunity to, to sort of be sandwiched between two people like that has, uh, you know, really impacted my coaching career and just my my views and thoughts on, on basketball. Did you have any insight at that stage of Nick's musical abilities? Yeah, I mean, I've known... You know, I've spent a, I, I spent a lot of time with Nick. I mean, I had an I stayed with Nick in in, in Rio Grande when he was there, um, and uh, Nick Nick uh, Nick has a lots of of different interests. He's, he's a huge jazz fan. Um, his office in Toronto has has various sort of elements of music in in uh, paintings and stuff on the walls. Um, so he's always had a a vested interest in music, you know, even to the point where he has a, a piano or a, a guitar in his room in summer league and stuff like that. So, um, he's, uh, I think he has a, has a secret ambition to be a, a rock star, but, uh, I think he's already, he's already a rock star, just, yeah. uh, just not yeah. in a musical sense. Different, different, different <laughs> capacity. Yeah. I mean, with Chris, I mean, we, we all kind of hope for him to get, the same opportunity that, that that Nick has had, but when you when you look back at you know and you know from someone who was a player in the BBL and then opted to coach at you know frankly the very lowest level in Europe or one of the lowest levels to, to go where where he's from and it, you know when you speak to people around the NBA it's, they talk about his detail and that sort of attention to detail that he has how much is that helpful when you're an assistant coach to have someone who will challenge you oh immensely i mean and you know they're both hugely detailed people i mean they you know chris chris i mean the benefit that both those guys these guys have are is that they are basketball coaches they're not an offensive coordinator and they're not a defensive coordinator they've the way that they progress their careers is they, they've had to do everything you know they've they've been on club teams or at small staff, they're running the offense, they're running the defense, they're doing special teams, they're doing end of game, they're doing everything. And it's and, it, and it's formulated, you know, it's helped them grow as basketball coaches rather than being assigned one thing, which is often what you see in the NBA. You know, you're running the offense and, and these guys are running an offense and they've never coached a game of basketball in their life. These guys have coached thousands of games at a high level in Europe. Um you know, internationally, and and they've they've, you know, they've created and developed their, their their styles and their approaches to the game. 
So when it, when you come to work with people like that, you really appreciate, start to appreciate the value of detail, you know, the value of, of how you, you know, and both of them are very, you know, both of them have different um, management approaches or dealing with player approaches. Um, and, and I mean, I, I, if you ask me to pick, I mean, you could pick a couple of your early guys for sure, but in terms of the environment you work in now, you couldn't have picked two better people. I, I honestly believe they're two of the best coaches in the NBA um, because of the path that they've traveled, the games that they've had to play, and the amount of detail that they've had to focus on because of the environments that they're playing in. And to think they were once simply just Finchy and Nursey competing to have the best fitting suit from Burton. Look at they, 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 uh, they'll always be Finchy and Nursey. <laughs> I mean, after those Olympics, I mean, you, you, you went out to Germany and you, you coached Weissenhorn, which is the, the sort of you, you set up a developmental side of, of, of Ulm. Again, you know, another country, another system, another very well-regarded you know, system there. What, did, what was Germany doing right that you picked up on? I mean, the biggest thing for me, one of the first things I noticed with Germany is that they, they value local talent. So um, I obviously worked with and for Torsten Liebenath, who was one of Chris's assistants. Um, former former Rocks coach back in the day. Yep, previously the Rocks coach. And um, that was the first thing that really struck me is that how focused they were on, I mean, with the way that the, the Bundesliga is, is organized, and I'm not sure where they're at with Americans now, it might be five, but they rely on having, you know, five high-level Germans on the floor or on the team. Um, so there was a huge um, focus on finding and identifying and bringing in high-level German talent. Um, and it, 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 just, it just stood out to me that that, that was what we'd always, that's what we had been aspiring to do. And that the, I just don't feel we still, or that we do that in England still. I think what's happened now with the university uh, leagues has helped without a doubt. Um, it kind of underpins that a little bit. But whether or not there is that transition of talent that goes through to playing um, at, at the highest level in the UK. So that's the thing that popped for me the first. Then it was just in terms of the organization, um, the management of things, the you know sponsors, just everything was so clean and easily done. Um, you know, it was just, it was like, Typically, like you know, like anything within Germany, it was just like a it was just a very well organized, well oiled machine, um, all the way from the Bundesliga down to their under ten and under eleven teams. They had their own practice facility, uh, they had their own arena, um, and I think you know that that was another thing is that the, the impact that having your own facilities, which a few of the clubs in England now have, has a huge huge difference on in terms of development and um, sort of just making everything around it better. I mean, you had the year as a head coach in Japan, then, you know, a couple of years in, in the, the, the NBA G League or D League, whatever it was called at that time, the developmental league. I mean, first with, with Phoenix's developmental side, the Bakersfield Jam, and then yeah. up north of the border with the Raptors 905. You know, in that sort of role where it's all about development, it's all about, you know, making players skip that extra 10% up so that they maybe might be ready to come into the NBA. How much, although they're adult players, how much does the sort of learnings you have from a predominantly European system in terms of skill development, small, that small detail setup, things you've taken from, from Chris and Nick, how much does that translate into an environment where players are under scrutiny, they're under pressure, you're trying to make it, but they know that they have to tick certain boxes for their NBA team to, to take that look. Um, I mean, I think the, I mean, the G league is a, is a, is a high level league. And there are some high level players playing there. Um, your, your work day is an NBA work day in terms of the way that you work and deliver the work with the players and, um, 
organized. The expectations are are, are exactly the same. Um, it it's um, I mean it's obviously a unique environment in terms of you know player development and ensuring that that things go through. But it's um, it's hard to say. I mean, it, it's a high it's a highly competitive. I mean, I, I, I found it hugely beneficial because it, it really opened eyes in terms of different ways of working with players. Um, I was in, a, it was in a privileged situation, I guess, in, in many ways. And um, not so much in, in, in Bakersfield because we were distanced from Phoenix, although we, you know, we would spend time there. Um, but in Toronto, for sure, we, you know, I, would, I would participate and join and work with um, some of the coaches would play development in the mornings, um, make the effort to go in and do that with the NBA guys. And then I'd go back and I'd work with the, the G league stuff in the afternoon or whenever we had practice. So obviously you, you know, you had the crossover of both, you know, so you were learning, um, and, and understanding how that all came about. And I think it, it definitely has helped. I think it's helped, players with transitioning not only to the NBA but also to Europe I think there have been European coaches working within the G League um, so from that perspective but also just in terms of the skill sets that are needed to, to compete. How do you feel that you're measured though as a coach in the G League because it's I remember speaking to Nate Ranking about this so it's you know he's obviously Great Britain head coach head coach in the G League I mean it's obviously winning games is important you know Nick and Chris got their breaks onto the NBA because they won G League championships. But mm-hmm. how, how are you judged, do you feel, day-to-day, though, on, on your performance when it's not entirely about the wins? Well, I mean, I, th- I think you're, I mean, you're judged just in the same way you would be judged if you were with the NBA organization. I mean, we would have, in, in you know, the GM um, and the head coach obviously both have expectations. Um both the head coaches I work with have gone on to be um, assistant bench on, on the front of the bench coaches in, in the, in the NBA. Um, so, you know, you're, you're judged in exactly the same way, like in terms of your, you know, player development, your management of players, your ability to create relationships with players. Um, and then obviously your, your technical and tactical knowledge that you, you, you know, you're judged on that in terms of, by the head coach and by management and them observing and watching you throughout practices and through games. So um, it's, it has vastly become a route now where um, a lot of younger coaches have had success in terms of, um, you know, making the next step to be involved with the NBA or they've had an opportunity to go and coach overseas. So it's, it's, it's high profile, it's pressure. Um, I don't think people at times understand how good that league is. Um, some people probably from out, you know, outside of, of the U.S. undervalue that in terms of um, how good some of those players are and how good some of the coaches are that are coaching in it. Do you feel that, it, it, given the investment that's going in, obviously the NBA is pushing for younger talents to stay now, you know, kids who would have gone into freshman year in college going to, you know, their select team for the G League. I mean, do you see a real situation now where that will become the, the second best league in the world in terms of quality of play? I, th- I think it's, I think the, the thing, let's say, for example, you compare it to the ACB, the thing you lack there is you obviously lack, lack um, an element of knowledge and an element of experience. Um, you got a lot of rookies that play in that league, but it's, I would say it's right up there. You know, it's up there behind the top leagues in the world. Um, I, th- I think, um, it's hard because you have, it's a hard league because you have so many people coming and leaving and going and players leave for jobs here and then they get pulled up and they get called up. Um, so sometimes it's hard to establish, you know, a team can be really good and then it can lose three guys and it can, you know, it can really upset the balance. And for a lot of people on the outside, they'll look at it and say, well, that's not very good. Or this team, you know, whatever. Um, so it's really understanding the dynamics of that. But I, I do believe that the level of, of, of everything around that, that league is, is world class. And 
you know, if it was a league, if it was being run in an environment where players were there for a duration and, you know, they weren't moving around, then I think it would compete with some of the top leagues in, in the world. You mean, you left though to become head coach of, of the Thailand national team and then, you know, you dispel Philippines, a consultant, then onto Qatar as their head coach. I mean, explain to us, how does, how does this come about for, for a Brit who, you know, spent time in the, in the States and Europe? How do these jobs in Asia come about for you? I, um, I mean, I, I've... I've always backed myself. I mean, I've, I've used agents, but I've not relied on agents. And most of the jobs I've got have not come through agents. Um, they've come through word of mouth and recommendation. Um, you know, I've, you know, it, it's been an investment for me in terms of you know, my coaching. I believe I've taken jobs from the start of, uh, for opportunity rather than financial reward with the intention of progressing to the next level and, and the next opportunity and the next opportunity. There's always been the mindset of, I would like to be a coach in the NBA, you know, and that's, that's at the very top of that pyramid. Um, I firmly believe that as a British coach, that's the way that you have to look at this. You, you are not as a British coach on your, you're not going to go and get paid six figure sums of money in the first five to 10 years of your coaching career. I mean, you've, in, you know, unless you fall on your feet somewhere and you have to be exceptional, there are too many other people that, um, you know, Spain's not readily accepting a British coach. Um, you know, Germany is, is not an easy place to, to break into because they're promoting German coaches all the time. So I think it, you know, the, um, for me, the journey was, um, was the way I always imagined it would be, you know, just taking opportunities. And Thailand presented, my plan was to come back to, was actually, the plan was actually to come back to uh, Toronto and I was to be an assistant with Jerry Stackhouse. And it was the first time um, that financially a job made a lot of sense for me. And I opted to stay in Thailand for the two years that I did. Um, and it proved to be you know, a right decision on a number of a number of fronts. You know, financially, in terms of advancement of opportunities in Asia, um, and, and I think you you have to approach it in the mindset of you've got to create your you've got to create um, what's the word I'm looking for? You've got to create this faith by people. You know, you have to create a um, I've gone blank. I think it's my age kicking in here. Um, the uh, just the image that, pe that people see of you and the reputation that you develop, and I think you know. I think that I personally feel that I've done a, a, a good job with that in terms of the things that I've done, the way that I've approached things, um, and we were successful in Thailand. And again, it's you know, it's it's you know, everybody always looks at you didn't win the cup, you didn't win the, but it's in terms of a marks of progression and. In terms of Southeast Asia, you know, we went in and we made huge changes and, and advancements in basketball in Thailand, and it was noted throughout Asia in terms of the way that we played, the way that we competed, and the way that we were, you know, we were we were either beating or coming close to beating some of the better teams that they played in the past. And yeah, um, yeah, you get bronze at the Southeast Asian Championships. Yep. And then there's this incredible twist where. If if I if what I read or I read it is true, you're on a twenty five hour flight to Thailand, and then you stepped off a plane and an official, you think your job is is fine, it's safe, and then you get a tap on the shoulder. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is like this is. I mean, this is basketball anywhere in the world. Um, go work in Greece. Go work in, um, you know, any parts of, of that. Um, we. Uh, We'd actually gotten silver in the Stankovic, and then we'd, we'd gotten bronze, and uh, we made we made great strides and great trans uh, transition from doing certain things. And uh, like like everywhere else, Thailand is a very political, possibly even more so, it's a political monster with basketball. There were two rival factions, both club teams. One was a high tech, and one was a mono vampires. And uh, <laughs> initially, mono vampires were in charge of the national teams and then high tech took over 
And uh, you know, ultimately, when when that ever happens, the the high tech guys obviously think you're aligned with Mono, and that they want changes. And this is, you know, ultimately that's what happened. And um, you know, things changed, which you know, it had run its course in Thailand in terms of for me in terms of where we were at. I didn't feel um, you know bad about it by any means. It was just one of those things, and I knew there were there would be other opportunities that would present themselves within that region. Um, you know, as they did, I went, ended up then going to the Philippines to consult with uh, one of the top teams there, uh, TNT Tropoca, uh, Katropa, and uh, consult with the uh, Gilas national team. And that was all built again on our performances against the Philippine national team, you know, with Chot Reyes and, and, and Nash. Um, we, you know, we, we, we came closer to beating uh, Philippines team than, than any team out of that Southeast Asian bracket had done for a long, long time. So again, it's about building that, that reputation and building the quality of work that you do. So, you know, that then um, I did that past summer league with the Raptors and then um, was um, finishing up there and got the offer to go and work in Qatar for the year. I mean, it's been quite a nomadic existence, and obviously you've got you've got daughters. You're you're going around the world. You know, you're based in Florida now. From a personal basis, how how much of a kind of sacrifice does it feel to have to to live this existence? Because there is that always that, I guess that debate of you know how do you juggle personal life, professional life, and you know and everything that exists in between and around it. Sure. I mean, you know, coaching of any, in any, once you take that step to be full-time professional coaching um, and you don't have the security of a nine to five jobs, for example, like teaching, you become, nom- you, you are going to become nomadic um, in terms of, of what you do and where you go and, and where you go. And especially because of the country that we live in, they, you know, we go back, it goes full circle back to the opportunities that present themselves or that people are willing to give you in your own country. And I think, there are very few opportunities to coach on a full-time basis to earn good money in the United Kingdom unless you're doing something else alongside it. And uh, I made the decision that I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be full-time coaching. And therefore, that decision um, necessitated you know, the, you know, my moving to take better opportunities um, as, as you move forward. And... I think if any young British coach asked me, you know, I would always, and I always have, I would always say to them, you've, you've got to, you, you have to take opportunity over financial reward initially. Because if you're only, if you're not going to take jobs because it's not enough money, then you're never going to have an opportunity to get out of the UK. And I think that at times is the sticking point where a lot of the younger coaches don't make that leap. Um, they may well be teaching or they may be working in jobs where they they are able then to coach and enjoy coaching, but but they wouldn't make the money to su- be able to supplement their lives or income if they did it on a full time basis. So it's a hard it's a hard decision, and you it's a decision you make knowing that you're probably not going to end up coaching back in the UK, and you're going to end up coaching at some smaller countries around the world initially, and then ultimately. Um, find opportunities and as long as you back yourself and you do the job and you're good at your job and you invest in in your profession um, in terms of the education and learning then I believe the opportunities will present themselves to you. Is that tough to also be a parent though while doing that? Absolutely I mean I got divorced in 2006 and that obviously my my, my decision to, to 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 leave and go go overseas meant less time with with my daughters um and and that of all of the of all the decisions whether it's opportunity or financial was the hardest one to 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 overcome um but it's you know as a i I also think that you know for for some for younger coaches who are married with families then that becomes you know it is a it is a major major issue in terms of allowing you to pursue something that you are passionate about um, with the level of income that it would provide. I mean, the plus about 
you know, for people, young people with families and looking to do it, is that the majority of these jobs that you would be going to at lower levels in Europe still provide accommodation and <laughs> and car and, and things like that. So, but there, there are always, you know, and, you know, would you, if you look back at it now in hindsight, would you do things differently? I mean, obviously I would love to have loved to spend, um, you know, penciling more time with my daughters and stuff. Um, but uh, we, we have a good relationship and it's moved forward. They've all played basketball. They've understood, you know, what the necessities are. So, um, you know, you find ways of, of managing that. So let's bring this full circle. You said at one that, you know, the goal that you always had to set yourself was being a, you know, an NBA coach. What's the next stage you've got? You've got friends on, you know, considerable positions of influence within the NBA. No, I mean, it, it, what's the next step in this grand journey for you? Uh, you know, it, it's a really interesting question because it's, um, it's, you know, it's obviously interesting times um, here. Nobody really knows what's going to happen in terms of environment. I mean, I know in, in, in the NBA environment, um, the, you know, my ultimate goal Yes, would be, you know, I'd love to be a, an NBA assistant coach or player development or whatever it would be in a full-time capacity. But ultimately, you know, I guess ultimately the, the dream and the goal is just to remain involved with basketball in, a, in any capacity that you can. If that means, you know, you continue to do the advanced scouting or you can, you know, maybe you're, you, you get involved with college basketball or, or you go and coach at a, a high school program where you can really impact kids at a high level. Um, you know, it's that it's the satisfaction of, of, of doing that. But you know, obviously, with the with the times that we face now, it's it's um, you know it's not easy. Nobody knows what's what's going to happen. High schools keep delaying their start. Uh, colleges are unsure whether they're going to even compete this year. Um, and as of now, who knows if the NBA regular season that's planned to start in December will even move forward. So I think once October rolls around and, and all this is cleaned up, um, you know, people will have a, a better facility. You know, and if my if my next step happens to be back, um, you know, involved with working with an NBA team in some capacity, then great. If it's back overseas, then so be it. I think uh, we all have dreams and goals that we, we aspire for, aspire to, to sort of reach. Um, but that doesn't, you know, that doesn't inhibit you from taking um, – you know, other situations or other jobs that uh, you know may may come up. Well, in the meantime, you can enjoy your beachside house in Florida and watch the girl go by and watch some basketball just up the road. On the Absolutely, television. absolutely. It's uh, I can't. I, I'm not in a position that I can complain really. I think, <laughs> uh, it's uh, you know I, you know we've worked hard you know to, to get to this point and um, you know that's one of for me that's. Um, you know, this is just one of the accomplishments from 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 doing that. And I, I think, as I said to you, the just now the, the thing I would just say to British coaches: you have to back yourself because nobody else is going to back you. Um, you have to be prepared to to take an opportunity of a financial reward, and then you have to be prepared to to work hard um, at your trade. And to prove to people that you belong in those environments, because I can tell you now, you know, I've heard it over the last 15 years, 20 years, you know, when you say you're from England, I mean, it's either a wry smile or people chuckle at you as if to say, well, they don't even play basketball in England, right? So that's what we face. And I think, uh, you know, for young coaches in England, you know, to succeed and to find opportunities outside, those are the things you got to do, and that's not easy. Especially where, if you're established in a in a career already, and you have to take a, a risk of of leaving a you know, which is what I did. I left a full full time job, nine to five, um, you know, holidays, all that stuff, and uh, and you start again. And uh, it depends on how how passionate um, you are about. Uh, making an opportunity in, in this career uh, a reality. Well, it's a risk that's worked out very well for you so far. Um, hopefully there'll be more gambles that pay off and more interesting stops on this journey. 
Tim Lewis, though, thank you so much for joining us on the MVP cast this time around. Mark, thank you for your time. That's it for this edition, brought to you with our sponsors at Total Environmental Compliance. Give them a follow on social media at TE Compliance Limited. You can get all our previous editions at MVP247.com or subscribe via your preferred podcast provider. If you want to reach out, get me on Twitter at Mark Britball. Another edition of the MVP cast coming very soon. But for me, Mark Woods, it's bye for now. <laughs>